Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. At a loss, Save the Children says the toll of Israel's attacks on Gaza have now passed a staggering milestone. The organization's representative in Canada tells us there is still a way to stop the bloodshed. Descending into chaos, passengers on a flight from Tel Aviv to Russia yesterday were confronted by an angry mob, one of several incidents that has our guest urging his Jewish friends and family to get out of Russia. Street cred, the city of Halifax, has just renamed a street in honor of Nora Bernard, the residential school survivor who fought and won landmark compensation for others taken from their families. We'll speak with her daughter, who says it is a fitting honor for a woman who, quote, loved beyond loving. A blasé of glory, a fairly pedestrian exploration of the recent Japanese tradition of mundane Halloween, where people dress up in costumes depicting very specific moments from everyday life. My kind of Halloween. A mugshots game. Our guest is the creator of a new competition called the Florida Man Games, where participants will battle it out in the evading arrest obstacle course and beer belly Florida sumo. And Bull Market. A farmer in Northern Ireland has some serious beef with thieves who stole something that was supposed to produce some serious beef. Two tanks containing a large quantity of bull semen. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that warns, the situation is fluid. The fact that well over 3,000 children are reported to have been killed in Gaza is staggering by any measure. But Save the Children is making a comparison that puts the death toll in grim perspective. According to the NGO's calculations, Israel's strikes on Gaza have now claimed the lives of more children than all the world's conflicts annually since 2019. Dahlia Alakati is the head of humanitarian affairs for Save the Children Canada. We reached her in Toronto. And a warning, some of the details in this interview are disturbing. Dahlia, did you expect to be making this comparison at this stage? No, no, I didn't. Um, On one hand, we've been talking about an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. uh, But to see the numbers, to see the the comparison is uh, is really eye-opening. When we talk about over 3,400 children being killed in a period of three weeks, a number that is more than the annual number since 2019 of children killed in conflict zones across 20 countries. This is horrific. And you've worked in many of the conflict zones that uh, the organization is referencing here, and this exceeds what you've seen? It has. I've, I've worked in many of those conflict zones. I have attachments to many of those conflict zones. As a humanitarian aid worker, it 
this is one of the few, probably only times where I've seen a population, where I've seen children being deprived to this extent of, of water, of food, of health services. The stories that we hear, the stories that we see, are staffing is that children are having to be amputated without painkillers. It is just horrendous. Just last week, you may recall, U.S. President Joe Biden says he has no confidence in death toll numbers put out by the health ministry in Gaza because it is run by Hamas. Why do you and your colleagues believe the numbers are accurate? These numbers, they're coming from the ground. The United Nations is using them. Humanitarian actors are using them. And they are very much supported by what we see we hear the accounts from our staff firsthand. The situation is appalling. It is horrific. And everything that we are seeing from the ground supports the fact that children are being hurt the most. The, the impact on civilians is grave. We heard today from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, he called for, quote, a moral distinction between the deliberate murder of the innocent and the unintentional casualties that accompany every legitimate war, unquote. Do you have hope that that there is a way to save these children, given the kind of rhetoric that is out there? Parties to a war, parties to a conflict, have an obligation under international humanitarian law to not deprive civilians from objects critical to their survival. And... The killing and maiming of children is a grave violation, and we have to do everything within our power to make sure that these grave violations do not continue. And that includes calling for a ceasefire and calling for that ceasefire now. How would you assess the Canadian government's response to this point? Well, the Canadian government should be asking for a ceasefire and to be calling for unfettered, unrestricted humanitarian access. We need to be able to reach populations in need where they are. Prior to this escalation, 500 trucks entered a day. A hundred of those were purely humanitarian supplies. After two weeks of no assistance entering Gaza, we're still barely scratching the surface of what's needed. The UN is also concerned deeply about the 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza. Approximately 150 of them are giving birth each day. What are the realities those women are facing right now? It is a very difficult time. I myself uh, had my first child a little under two years ago. And knowing that there are hundreds of deliveries happening every single day in Gaza, that are happening without the proper medical care, that are happening without the proper medication, without any anesthesia, where newborn babies that might need neonatal intensive care units can go into them, but they don't know how long they'll be powered. They don't know how long they'll be able to provide ventilators. There's so much that's hinging on the ability of fuel to get into Gaza. It is harrowing. We've had conversations with doctors and others at hospitals in Gaza, outlining just the decline in, in their ability to actually help patients. As you know, though, the military action, Israel's military action continues uh, and intensifies 
I want to play a clip for you and our listeners now from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, what he said about the prospect of a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Given that, Dalia, what do you think could actually change the situation, change minds at this point? I think there needs to be a continued call from every single person across Canada, across this globe, with their representatives, with their governments, to demand the ceasefire. It is imperative to the livelihood, to the survival of over a million children in Gaza. We've been warning of a catastrophe. We are at the catastrophe. Every person who ever cares about child rights or cared about children needs to be contacting their officials to say, this is a war on children. We need a ceasefire. We need it now. Dahlia, thank you. Thank you for having me. Dahlia Alakati is the head of humanitarian affairs for Save the Children Canada. We reached her in Toronto. For decades, one of the main arteries in downtown Halifax has been called Cornwallis Street, after Edward Cornwallis, the British governor of Nova Scotia and founder of Halifax, who, in 1749, issued a bounty for the deaths of Mi'kmaq people. That horrifying legacy is the reason that this morning new signs were unveiled, renaming it Nora Bernard Street, in honor of a residential school survivor who helped lead the fight for compensation. Here's Ms. Bernard on the CBC's Maritime Noon in 2007, when a historic class action settlement finally arrived. Oh, it means the end. And that the survivors are going to be compensated. Not that much, but hey, it's, um, it's something for them. You know, uh, at least they'll have a few dollars to live just a few more years, you know. And I just want to thank them because they have been so patient with myself and our lawyer, and they have stuck right by us. Nora Bernard speaking on the CBC's Maritime Noon in August 2007, just a few months before her death. Natalie McLeod Glode is Ms. Bernard's daughter. We reached her on Millbrook First Nation, Nova Scotia. Natalie, when, when you hear your mother there, what should that tell us about the kind of person she was? Well, I'm just kind of taken back by hearing her voice. Mm. Um, She was a wonderful woman. She was an absolute gem. Just the way her voice sounded, that's who she was. She was gentle. She was kind. She would work her magic to make sure that all her children were taken care of, plus all her survivors. She was, she was everything. She was our matriarch. 
even before I, I heard a word about your mom or, or read the quotes in the in the CBC News article about her, her photograph, warmth radiates from her face. Absolutely. Her face spoke of pure truth, forgiveness and accountability. People always said your mother was so beautiful, but it was it was like a reflection of her heart. And it truly was. So now you see a different reflection of her, her name on this on this street sign. What was it like today to see that? It was overwhelming. We were excited. It was a gift from her legacy of what she truly believed in. In the end, this came down to a vote. From residents. So what does it mean to you that the people there chose her? It was remarkable. I could not believe that she won by a landslide. Her name, it was voted upon, and the people that spoke through the vote was incredible. I was very honored that mom was chosen. Um, She wasn't just a mom to me, but she was a mom to a lot of people. And she was a hero, a warrior. She was an all-new grandmother, a great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. And we were just so overwhelmed when we, when we heard that she, she had won. What do you think she would say if she were here and saw that street sign? I know that she would be totally shocked. <laughs> she would be totally, totally shocked. She'd be saying, why me? Why not Annie Mae Pictoakwash? Why not Rocky Jones? Why not someone else? She didn't want the limelight. She always tried to put other people first. She was that helper. And she didn't stop. Once her moccasin hit the ground, she moved forward. She moved with such elegance and such smartness. It was the awareness that she knew she had to to help her survivors heal in some way, shape, or form. She had been forced to attend the Shubenacadie Residential School when she was a child, and she became an adult. She wanted to do this work, the work that you've described, and she's been honored for. But what did she tell you about what that work meant to her, why she kept doing it? She kept doing it because of all the abuse and the the traumatization and the torture that they went through that nobody believed them. She went door to door, province to province. She even went into the United States and received statements and they trusted her. They believed her. They wanted to tell their story. So finally... It could be heard. They were mentally, physically, spiritually, sexually, emotionally tortured in the Shibanagadi Indian Residential School prison, I call it. Piece by piece, she put the story together, the true story. And this was a woman that came from nothing. She lived in a shack where she raised us. We had no power, no electricity. We had no running water, no bathroom. We carried our water, chopped our wood. Old clothes she would take and sew. And you would swear that those clothes came from a a 
high class door. Well, we know it's going to be called Nora Bernard Street now, but for those of us who haven't seen the area, tell us about this street. Where is it? What do you see if you're there? It's towards the north end of Halifax. It's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful street. And the man that's name was on that street before was Cornwallis, the same man that, you know, the proclamation of the scalping of our indigenous people, he was on there. But, you know, Cornwallis, they say, was the founder. He was not the founder. How can you find something that was not lost? Our indigenous people lived there. And that area, our indigenous people lived there. And that land was stolen. And he's one of the ones that stole it. So it's a gratification to us and to our indigenous people to have that taken down. And can you imagine having an Ulnu Ebit, like a native woman, her name go up there that she fought for compensation. Her mother was forced to sign over her children. And the Indian agent would go around and collect them all up just like they were animals and put them in this place and keep them away. They tried to assimilate our people like mom used to tell us. They'll never do it. She said they'll never do it. She was a warrior. She was a hero. She was an Ulnu warrior woman. And she meant so much to a lot of people. Natalie, I'm so glad we could speak. Thank you very much. You're so very welcome. Take care. Take care. Up the morphis. Natalie McLeod Gloat is the daughter of Nora Bernard, who now has a street named after her in Halifax. We reached Ms. McLeod Gloat on Millbrook First Nation. There's something about Florida that inspires such baroquely bizarre criminal activity that it has inspired its own superhero of sorts. You know him as Florida Man. He's the one who shows up in real-life headlines like Florida Man steals chainsaw by sticking power tool down his pants or Florida Man tries to evade arrest by cartwheeling away from cops. And now, at last, you too have the opportunity to become Florida Man. Or at least, you can compete in the Florida Man Games, a new sporting event set for next February. It's the creation of Pete Melfi, the owner of the Florida news website The 904 Report. We reached him in St. Augustine, Florida. Well, Pete, you know people have been joking about the the Florida Man phenomenon for years now. We've certainly done our share of Florida Man uh, segments on As It Happens. But what was the moment that that this hit for you, that, that you decided to come up with these games? Well, so I've been covering news as well for mm-hmm. since 2011. I've uh, been in radio and TV since then. And I'm in the belly of the beast down here in Florida. You know, I, I'm right in the middle of it. We get to live Florida Man every single day. So I was sitting around thinking, how can we really create an event that's going to let people live that Florida Man headline as wild as it is? you know, without getting arrested at the end of it. So that was kind of my goal with this whole thing is just a day full of laughter and fun. I think that's one of the best feelings you can give to people 
is, is laughter. So that's my main goal. Is there a story that, that sticks out in your mind, something that, that sums up <laughs> the idea of Florida Man? Well, I think one of the most recognizable stories, and, and you'll probably remember this if you've covered Florida Man for a while, it's the guy who drove through the Wendy's drive-thru, right, with an alligator. And then he throws it through the drive-thru window at Wendy's. And first of all, I have to say, I question his Florida manness because if that was a true Florida man, he would have just thrown it in there and asked them to cook it up. I mean, Gator Tail's a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good meal. <laughs> but I wonder if there's if there's criticism as well, because you are touching on serious issues as well. I know your goal is is laughter, as you said, but crime, policing, addiction, poverty are all certainly real issues in Florida. So have you had any pushback? Have you heard anything since you announced these games? I will, I will say... Every single thing I have seen personally has been nothing but positive. I think people understand that, you know, in Florida, we embrace our wildness. We embrace <laughs> our weirdness. So, um, you know, we are, we are down to laugh at ourselves as well. And, you know, we're not trying to glorify crime or anything like that. And, uh, you know, our local sheriff's office is involved in this. You might have seen the evading arrest obstacle course yes. uh, listed as one of our games. And that has actual police officers chasing down our competitors. So, <laughs> I, you know, I think if they thought in any way that we were trying to glorify crime or making light of serious situations, I know they wouldn't have been involved. So I think everybody gets that it's, it's fun. It's a day of, uh, you know, yeah. just laughter. Like I said, we want everybody to just leave out of there with their guts hurting from laughter all day long. So we're going to have 16 teams from across Florida, from different counties, really battling it out to see who will take home that uh, that Gator Head Trophy, the (laughs) coveted Gator Head Trophy. The first. um, That we are offering, yeah. There's Um, also an event called the Weaponized Pool Noodle Mud Duel. (laughs) So how do you win that one? You're on a pedestal in... Uh, in what we're calling the Florida Man Games Coliseum, which, of course, it's Florida, so that's just a big old above-ground pool. <laughs> um, and the, the goal is to knock each other off of the pedestal and, and into the pit of mud out there, because there's got to be some mud involved in the Florida Man Games, right? Well, sure, yeah. There's got to be gators. <laughs> there's got to be mud. Yep. There yep. apparently needs to, be, needs to be beer, uh, because there's a category, Check. Beer Belly Florida Sumo. Is that just, what is that all about? Uh, That's basically as straightforward as any of our games are. You know, uh, get two guys in the middle of a ring and kind of have them duke it out. Is there a a measurement for the beer belly? I mean, to to gain access to that category? (laughs) Are there different, you know, weight, weight classes? You know what? I might have to implement. You're giving me some great ideas. I, mean, so I may have to implement that. And uh, <laughs> and I will call you first for permission if I okay. do. That. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> and one chicken chicken coop bingo. Yes, How is that so, quintessentially Florida? So if I, I don't care where you are in Florida, you can't go five minutes without seeing a chicken somewhere. <laughs> um, so we're going to have two chickens in a chicken coop with the numbers on the ground, and uh, I I guess I just got to come out and say it, whichever number they poop on is the number we're calling for bingo. So you got to fill out your square uh, depending on uh, where those chickens move around that board. So can anyone take part? I mean, what about Florida women? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, in covering the Florida man stories, I've always said Florida women make some of the best Florida man stories. And Florida man is kind of a mentality in itself. 
So, oh, yeah, it is open to absolutely everybody who wants to compete. As long as you're a Floridian, hey, come on. We want you. Okay, so you have to have you have to have residence in Florida to actually take part. Yes, yes. You're going to be checking. We will be <laughs> frivolously checking, yes. We'll be feverishly checking, okay. yes, is what I should have said. <laughs> You're going to narrow down the competitors, as I understand it. So for those looking to make the cut, what's the checklist? So we will have 16 teams of five, and we had one guy. Uh, this freaked us all out. He uh, sent us a video of him pulling an alligator, live alligator, out of a lake by its tail. He falls during this video. The alligator snaps at him. I mean, it's dramatic. And so, of I've course, it's Florida. Telling, of course, it's dramatic. Right. Of course. People are trying to do the weirdest things they can to get our attention. I will say, I am not encouraging anybody to risk their lives to just uh, to enter our contest. But definitely, uh, definitely try to get our attention for sure. Pete, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, Neil, it was so much fun. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. I feel like a big star now <laughs> hanging out with you for a little while. Take care. You got it. Thank you. Pete Melfi is the creator of the Florida Man Games. We reached him in St. Augustine, Florida. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday, after the flight from Tel Aviv to Mahachkala, Russia, landed, an announcement came over the PA. This is your captain, the voice said, according to The Guardian. There's an angry mob outside. It's possible we'll come under attack. Hundreds of people had assembled after a post went out on Telegram telling residents of the Dagestan region to go to the airport to confront the Israelis on the flight. Some carried Palestinian flags and signs denouncing Israel. They managed to storm the tarmac. The arriving passengers were taken to safety. Dor Shabashevitz is a journalist who's originally from southern Russia. We reached him in Yerevan, Armenia. Dor, just what were these telegram posts telling people to do when they got to the airport last night? Uh, well, there is this uh, telegram group chat with uh, over 50,000 subscribers called uh, Dagestan Morning. And the posts in, in the group uh, were mostly inciting violence, basically, looking for Jews, fighting Jews, and protecting Dagestan and the North Caucasus from alleged Israeli settlers and refugees from the war in Israel. Uh, apparently, whoever was making these posts wanted to spread disinformation, saying that many Israelis are going to move to Dagestan and steal the land from the locals. The videos themselves, can you describe for our listeners what they show about what happened when the people who read those those telegram messages and decided to act on them. What were those videos showing? First, the, the, the first videos I saw were of people 
standing uh, on the road leading from the airport to the city of Mahachkala. And they were stopping every single car going from the airport and checking the passports of every passenger and asking what they identified as ethnically and religiously, if they had any connection to Israel or the Jewish people. And then the, the crowd was growing and at some point they started uh, like trying to get into the airport terminal building. Uh, they broke the doors, they entered it, uh, they stormed it and then they got to the runway. So there were many videos of uh, huge crowds violently moving uh, through the security gates and whatnot and shouting, mainly shouting Allahu Akbar. I haven't seen any videos with uh, actual like Palestine-related slogans, but many people were holding Palestine flags. How were the passengers taken to safety? Uh, they were blocked in, in the plane uh, when, it was, when it landed, the, the Tel Aviv plane. They were locked inside the plane for a few hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't know what they were supposed to do. So there were like this mad crowd was right outside the plane on the runway. Uh, but at some point, they ha- the airport staff somehow managed to get them on a bus and they took them to the VIP terminal, which is a separate building from the main one. It, uh, mm-hmm. There were no like program participants in the VIP terminal. So the crowd was running behind the bus, but they didn't get there. And uh, reportedly, people on the bus were showing their Russian passports through the windows so that people uh, participating in the program understand they're not Israeli although actually many were dual citizens of Russia mm-hmm. and Israel. You've certainly seen Russian authorities in the face of, of protests uh, crack down quite quickly. So what happened in this case? In the beginning, when people were stopping cars and looking for Jews, the police weren't doing anything at all. Uh, I'm not sure if it was like a deliberate decision or maybe they just didn't have enough people uh, dispatched at the location at the time. Maybe they were afraid to, to engage. It was just maybe a couple of petrol cars or a few officers. Maybe that's why. I think they weren't prepared. But this is actually kind of weird because, uh, you know, the Russian police definitely monitor major telegram channels, telegram groups, and they must have known about the preparations of this program. By the end of the program, when, when, when the passengers were in safety, some of the program participants were arrested. So I've heard. I know you've been speaking with people uh, in Dagestan. How are they feeling right now? It's complicated. Well, basically, I'm obviously biased. I don't have many acquaintances who support violent anti-Semitism. So the people I talked to, they mostly condemned uh, what was happening in their region. And they were really afraid that this um, act of violence will stain the reputation of the whole uh, Republic of Dagestan, the whole Dagestani people. So they were thinking, oh, my God, now we're going to be called terrorists in every single country we go to. So mainly people were sad and disheartened uh, by what their compatriots were doing. But I know I know some of their relatives were actually supporting it. It's all because of the rumors, because obviously as a rather suppressed and discriminated against population within Russia. So like Russia is has a lot of socially accepted and normalized institutionalized racism against its Muslim minorities. So many people in Dagestan identify with uh, colonized peoples across the world and they uh, sympathize with the Palestinian struggle. So maybe that's why they were mm-hmm. like so eager to act, even if it was illegal and morally incorrect. They wanted to reroute their distress with their own position in Russia and somehow target whatever they could target. And that was the Jews. You're Jewish, you're Russian. I know you're in Armenia right now, but how does it feel to to hear and see and talk to people about what's going on? 
Uh, it's really sad. Yeah. Um, I left Russia about three years ago, and I've been splitting time between Armenia and Israel. I'm also an Israeli citizen. So obviously a lot of my friends and family are Jewish, and some of them are still staying in Russia. Um, this happening in Dagestan specifically and elsewhere in the North Caucasus hits especially close to home because um, I'm originally from southwestern Russia, from the city of Astrakhan, which is pretty close to Mahachkala, and it also has a huge Dagestani community. I know everyone in Russia, I mean, every Jewish person in Russia probably doesn't feel safe right now. Even in uh, larger cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, nowhere in Russia is safe, and I'm really urging my friends to, to leave the country as soon as possible. Maybe going to Israel isn't the best option right now, but in long term, I think Israel is the safest place to be as a Jewish person right now. So maybe they should stay here in Armenia, which is a very peaceful country and accepting of Jews these days, or elsewhere before they go to Israel and make Aliyah. Because being Jewish in modern-day Russia, or really being anyone in modern-day Russia, as long as you oppose the war on Putin, is kind of dangerous. Dor, thank you for your time. Thank you, too. Dor Shabashevitz is a journalist who's originally from southern Russia. We reached him in Yerevan, Armenia. Here in North America, Halloween is all about spookiness, creepiness, and or sexy pirateness. As you will note from the giant inflated purple witch in your neighbor's yard, which cackles through a loudspeaker for hours every night, Halloween here is not about subtlety. But in Japan, they do the holiday differently. They do mundane Halloween. To explain, we reached Nick Kapoor. He's a historian of modern Japan, and every year he tweets about the tradition. Nick, I finally think I found uh, a, a Halloween I can, I can get behind, mundane Halloween. I've been reading about it, but for our listeners, just describe what it is. Yeah, so in Japan, there is a website called Daily Portal Z, uh, which is kind of a fun, humorous website that's been around for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And back in 2014, they started having an annual party, which in Japanese is called Jimmy Halloween or uh, mundane Halloween, where people dress up in kind of exceedingly ordinary costumes, you know, representing very ordinary situations that many different types of people find themselves in, and they find humorous takes on daily life in that way. They are very funny. They're relatable and very clever. Uh, What are some of your favorites from this year? Well, this year there was a woman who dressed up as someone who was late for work and then (laughs) received a ticket from the station proving that the train had been delayed and then she decided to go to work a little more slowly than usual. So that's an example of one that's highly relatable. Uh, Another one that I quite liked was a woman who dressed up as the mysterious girl on the poster for the Japanese movie My Neighbor Totoro, which is a girl that looks much like the two characters in the movie, but is neither of them, and people have wondered about this for many years. But it's a kind of very ordinary costume of wearing a raincoat and holding an umbrella. (laughs) Is the specificity of the descriptions and the costume really the key here? Yeah, I think so. Uh, There's a couple of genres. One is the exceeding specificity of a very specific everyday situation. Sometimes two or three sentences are needed to explain the costume because it's so specific. And then 
Others are just so generic that you're kind of caught off guard. One of my favorites from a few years back was a man who was left-handed, and his costume was a right-handed person. So he put his watch <laughs> on his other hand and dressed up as a right-handed person. Right. I saw one from 2020 when you when you were tweeting about it at that time, and it was someone forgetting they were wearing a mask and eating a corn dog. Yeah, so they had a ketchup <laughs> stain on their yeah. mask, yeah. It's not, I mean, I think critics might say, is this is this a lazy way to do Halloween? But I think it's clever. Yeah, I think it's very clever. And I think one of the things we see in Halloween parties around the world is oftentimes people try to impress others with how elaborate their costumes are or how far they've gone to represent something. And for them, they've jumped onto the Halloween bandwagon in recent years in Japan, and it's become more popular. But I think putting their own twist on it, maybe for a culture that has a long history of elaborate costumes, Mm -hmm. trying to do very simple costumes that you can throw together in a few minutes uh, was quite entertaining for them, and I think for people around the world now as well. You first started writing about this five years ago. What was the costume that piqued your interest? To be honest, I don't remember a specific (laughs) costume. One that kind of stands out in my mind is somebody wearing their pajamas and holding a slipper, and the title of the costume was someone who lost sight of a cockroach in the middle of the night while they were looking around for makeshift weapons. And I think that was another one that was exceedingly specific, but also relatable. Absolutely relatable. A couple more our producer loves from 2022. Person who tried to cut their own bangs, failed, and now claims it's the latest fashion. Yeah. Or a random character who appears in the early stages of a TV series in order to show you that if you get bitten, you become a zombie. (laughs) That that has a little bit of traditional Halloween in it, too. Yeah, there are some references to pop culture and media, like the My Neighbor Totoro one from this year as well. So I think that would be the third genre in addition to the exceedingly ordinary and the extremely specific. What do you think it says about Japanese humor? One of the big takeaways for me is that Japanese people have a sense of humor. I think there's a kind of popular conception that... Maybe there isn't as much humor in Japan, or it can be a humorless society. I think there's a kind of slapstick humor in anime and manga that people know about, but this kind of more subtle or sarcastic or ironic humor, I don't know if we see it all that much in some of the pop culture that gets exported. So for me, that's something to take note of. Do you go mundane for Halloween? Have you been doing this all this time? (laughs) No, I have two small kids, and so (laughs) I don't have time to go to adult Halloween parties myself. I'm usually taking the kids to their friends' Halloween parties or taking them trick-or-treating, and so they're really the star of the show. Yeah. Can you share what you've got going for them? Well, my son is really into birds, so this year he's dressing up as a bird watcher, and my daughter really likes to read classic literature now this year. I mean, she's in, in her teenage years. She's okay. dressing up as the main character from a telltale heart, Edgar Allan Poe's horror story. So she's going to carry around a heart. Oh, those are still pretty clever. Not mundane, yeah. certainly, but but uh, off off the beaten path for sure. Well, Nick, maybe we got to get you into a mundane costume. Is there one you would take from the ones you've tweeted? Uh... I'd have to think about it. There's so many good ones, but I'm right-handed, so maybe I'll be a left-handed person next time. Well, Nick, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you.
Nick Kapoor is a historian of modern Japan at Rutgers University. He's in Camden, New Jersey. And if you have a mundane Halloween getup of your own you want to show us, just email us at aih at cbc.ca. This is the sound of student protesters in Montreal today taking part in a classroom walkout in response to the Quebec government's plans to hike tuition at English language universities. Out-of-province students will see their tuition almost double and international students will pay a minimum of $20,000 with the money from the increases earmarked for French language universities. Noah Sparrow is a student at Concordia and one of the organizers of today's protest. We reached him in Montreal. Noah, we heard a bit of the protests there. What was the energy like for you in that crowd? Honestly, I was very overwhelmed by how positive um, the outcome was. Uh, we had thousands of students. We also had lots of faculty there. Um, I was, it was really great to just see the amount of people wearing their uh, university um, attire as well. I, it really just shows that this is a united front that we're fighting. The proposed legislation affects every institution in Quebec, and we are all actively trying to prevent it from happening. What was the moment you decided to, to organize this? So um, Alex actually informed me of the, um, the proposed legislati- legislation from the Quebec government. Alex O'Neill, um, he is a McGill student, and uh, we have, we've been working together on this project. And I honestly thought he was joking. Um, and after that, we kind of just, we thought mobilizing would be the best thing to do. So this crosses universities, certainly lots of different students, faculty, as as you mentioned. Yeah. We've we've covered the story on, on our program, and we've certainly heard on the network from politicians and university officials, but we haven't heard as much from students. So what was the message that you were trying to send today about what this will mean to students? What would it have meant to you if this were in place? If this were in place, um, Montreal's diverse and lively student culture would cease to exist. I mean, getting rid of out-of-province and international students, it's ridiculous. It's threatening the diversity here. It's threatening the culture that makes Montreal an internationally renowned place for universities. And quite honestly, I see Legault's proposed legislation as a threat to democracy because no students were consulted prior to this decision, nor were any people on university faculty or administrative boards. It's a completely ridiculous change to propose. What about fellow students? Maybe they were there at the protest or as you were getting ready for today, I'm sure people have shared their own personal stories about what tuition hikes would mean to them, how it, how it would impact their schooling. With this change, we're going to see a lot less money going into these universities because people just won't, will straight up not be able to afford coming here. And effectively... At universities that have smaller departments, they're going to shut down because there's going to be very little ability to fund those uh, departments. A lot of the arts culture is threatened with this change. 
Quebec's Minister of Higher Education, Pascal Derry, has said, as you've probably heard, that this is mm-hmm. this is happening to, quote, boost funding of French universities and to protect French. So the government feels that, that there's a concern there, that it needs to be protected. I think, I think, I think the Quebec government is obsessed with Quebec nationalism, and it's poisoning our country, quite frankly. I mean, honestly, French is not threatened here. And if it were, then I think that UCAM would not have been involved, and I would not have seen so many French students here today at the protest. French is not threatened, but Legault is actively threatening other people, and it's it's completely, it's, it's ridiculous. What did the French students say to you? They are fully on board. Every French student that um, that I saw today has been fully supportive, offered help. It, it's been great for it's been great from them for sure. If we go back in time before you chose your program, before you moved to Montreal, to, yeah. to you're studying creative writing. You talked about yeah. the arts culture there. How would how might this have impacted your decision or your ability to move to Montreal? Well, quite frankly, I. I pay a lot of money in tuition right now. If it was doubled, it would be about 20000 And I, that's not something I can afford. I, I don't know where I would be. It, would be li- it's, it sounds like it would be life-changing for you and others. Yeah, students. for sure. It, it, I would be a completely different person. So the energy in the crowd today was what you wanted. You wanted to send the message. But do you think it for will sure. actually affect change? Have you heard anything from government officials. We have not heard anything from government officials, and we are not going to stop until we hear from government officials. Do, what will that look like? What does we're not going to stop It would mean? look like more protests. It would look mm-hmm. like details are to be ironed out, of course, but Alex and I both are in unanimous agreement that we aren't going to stop anytime soon until we get an adequate response. Is the goal to get the government to, to step back from this? Yes, 100%. We do not want these changes to occur. Do you think you can do that? I am hopeful. I I really am. Noah, thank you. Thank you. Noah Sparrow is a Concordia student and one of the organizers of today's student walkout in Montreal. Some of you may have spent this past weekend carving pumpkins in cable-knit sweaters while drinking hot apple cider. If so, congratulations on being so autumnal. But I'm sorry to say that whatever you carved, it does not and cannot compare to Travis Ginger's pumpkin. Mr. Ginger is a Minnesota horticulture teacher. He grows big pumpkins, the biggest pumpkins, in fact. Last year, he set a North American record with a pumpkin called Maverick, which weighed 1,161 kilograms or 2,560 pounds. And he set that record at the annual weigh-off in Half Moon Bay, California, the Super Bowl of pumpkin growing. But he didn't stop there. He got a carver to turn that massive pumpkin into a jack-o'-lantern. And as we begin to prepare to celebrate Halloween, here's Neil's conversation with Travis Ginger from this time last year. So, Travis, your record-breaking pumpkin is now a record-breaking jack-o'-lantern. What does it look like now? So now it looks like a giant eagle. Wow. How What's the reaction been? Pretty good. The pictures that we have online are just um, been going kind of viral, and people seem to love it. But they must be stopping by and chatting you up about it? 
Absolutely. Today it's at its last event, and it'll be for a trunk or treat tonight. So hopefully people are excited. What's trunk or treat? So it's like where all the cars pull up and give out candy because the houses are so spread out. Oh, that's cool. And this star attraction, not so small right. star attraction, <laughs> right in the center of the action. You you commissioned a carver to, to carve this. You didn't carve it yourself. So who did you get to do it? Mike Rudolph, a guy who's carved for me for 15 years. Mm-hmm. He's done a bunch of different designs. And, yeah, finally this one. And why did you decide on an eagle this time? So we were going to, the nickname of this pumpkin was Maverick, and we were going to do the Maverick helmet with the mask and everything, the goggles. Like in Top Gun? Yes, exactly. Just did not have the shape. And to get a round helmet on a very irregular shaped pumpkin with clean lines just was not going to work. Well, not every pumpkin looks like Tom Cruise, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> right. But he did see a beak in it, and he's like, since this is a U.S. record, we could do a giant eagle. I'm like, okay, cool. That's good thinking. And how long did it take? Uh, about 11 hours. And what kind of tools is he using to do this? And is he, he working makes, alone? or? Yeah, he's working alone. He makes his own tools, like welds up a round uh, circle to a handle, and that'll kind of take off a lot of material at yeah. once, and then... A bunch of little intricate tools as well. And it's so large. Did he have to get inside of it? Uh, yeah, we do get inside of it yeah. to remove the seeds because the thing is six foot by six foot. So you got to reach way up in there to get the <laughs> seeds and clean them out. Yeah, even in a small pumpkin, anyone who's who's carved one or just cooked with one knows how hard it is to get to get all those seeds out. So how long did that process take? Uh, two hours. Oh, that's not so bad. Yep. I, I saw an, uh, a hack online where people were using hand mixers to scoop out the seeds. It's apparently easier. Yes, I don't know. I saw that as well. <laughs> but you guys, you guys weren't using hand mixers, I take it. Just bare hands? <laughs> yeah, just bare hands and some scrapers. And what happens to all those seeds now? Now all those seeds will get sold uh, worldwide oh. for auctions, for clubs. Um, can go anywhere from couple few hundred bucks to five hundred dollars wow with the with the hope being i guess for those growers that they're gonna they're gonna grow something as large as yours absolutely is that yep. likely is it is it yeah, likely this seed yeah. could grow the next world record no problem what's it like to see something that you grew you know from a seed into something so huge and record-breaking uh it's been pretty incredible because Really, when you think about it, this pumpkin was never even supposed to be. I dropped a five-gallon bucket full of dirt on it when it was day five, about a pound, and no one thought it would even make it. And then it grew into North America's largest. In terms of your other achievements as a grower, where does this one rank? Well, this is for sure my biggest. Uh, In 2020, we won the the national contest as well with a 2350 and that went on to be the Guinness Book of World Records' largest jack-o'-lantern, too. But uh, so now we're beating kind of our own record. You know, in just a bit, I'm going to be speaking, Travis, to uh, a grower here in Canada, another large pumpkin. Is there is there something that you growers in this category have in common that we should know about? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'd say anyone who's doing it is just putting in a ton of time and work. And mm-hmm. it's a small niche community. What makes you want to do it? 
For me, you know, this pumpkin was growing 55 pounds a day, uh, 1,475 pounds in a matter of 30 days. It really, it's fun to watch, but it's also really fun to see the reaction on people's faces. Just because it's so big. Yeah, I mean, this picture, or I'm, I'm sorry, this pumpkin will have probably, oh, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10,000 pictures of it. <laughs> the most photographed pumpkin in the world, potentially. We'll see. Yeah. So are you already planning your next record, or is there a point where you're like, this is it, I've I've done what you know, I can I for this? I, was re- <laughs> I said I was retiring after this year, but we'll have to see. I mean, now the sponsors are kind of helping out and you're known and you've got a target on your head and you might have to defend it. Ah, well, we'll see. Maybe we'll be chatting again next year, Travis. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. Appreciate it. From our archives, that was Minnesota pumpkin grower Travis Ginger speaking to Neil uh, this time last year. Now, incidentally, Mr. Ginger did not retire. This month, he set a new record with his 1,246.9 kilogram pumpkin. That's 2,749 pounds, which USA Today helpfully compared to the weight of an adult male walrus. You would think that the most dangerous thing that contains bull semen would be a bull. And it's still number one on the list, but number two isn't as far behind as you might assume. And if the people who stole two tanks full of bull semen didn't know about the dangers before, they probably know now. Earlier this month, someone stole the tanks from a farm in Clawher, County Tyrone, Northern Ireland. We all consider that weird, but it's weird for reasons beyond just the phrase bull semen theft. For one thing, yes, if the semen came from a high-quality bull, it is valuable. But you you can't just set up the equivalent of a lemonade stand at the end of your driveway and sell it. It would be gross. So how can the thieves make money? Also, the semen is stored in straws, long, thin vials, inside cryogenic tanks. Now, unlike the original container of the bull semen, the tanks will not gore you and stomp on your body. But if you're not extremely careful, the liquid nitrogen in the tanks can cause frostbite or cold burns or permanent eye damage. And if you put an entire finger in liquid nitrogen, you can kiss that finger goodbye. Except don't, because then you can kiss your lips goodbye. The point is, there are so many hassles that the tanks are really not worth the effort of having stolen them. So if the thieves thought they'd get rich from this one heist, they should know that's emission impossible. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.